This is The Torchbearers, an all-new podcast from the First Generation Students' Union at the University of British Columbia. My name is Alec Christensen, and each episode we will be hearing from first-generation and low-income UBC students, staff, and faculty about their experiences through university and both the barriers and the triumphs they face along the way. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that The Torchbearers is recorded and produced on the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territories of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people at and around the University of British Columbia. Episode 5, There Is No Silver Bullet. As we approach the halfway point of this podcast, today marks a special episode of The Torchbearers, in which we essentially zoom out and look at how many of the topics we've already examined such as food insecurity, mental health, identity, and imposter syndrome, intersect. The overall theme of this episode is distributive justice, which seeks to ensure resources are distributed fairly, effectively, and to those who require them most. In order to look at this topic, however, we have to take a broader approach than we typically do, focusing perhaps less on one student's personal narrative but instead paying attention to the ways in which the various barriers that first-generation and low-income students face rarely exist in isolation and, in fact, coexist and overlap. Joining me this week is Verena Rasa-Rakor, a PhD student at UBC's School of Population and Public Health. Verena is a particularly special guest as she combines her own lived experience as a first-generation student from a working-class background with her previous work as a psychiatrist where she often worked with low-income families. This is in addition to her research, looking at the relationship between human health and planetary health. My conversation with her will help us chart the ways in which financial insecurity, marginalization, and physical and mental health issues are all deeply interconnected topics that first-generation and low-income students are disproportionately affected by. I met with Verena in the School of Population and Public Health to hear about her own experiences as a first-generation student at various universities and how that identity has shaped her work. Our conversation began with Verena's background. So my name is Verena, I'm 35 years old, and I'm a first-year PhD student here at the School of Population and Public Health at UBC. I worked as a psychiatrist, um, mental health physician for um, several years before I decided to leave clinical practice and come back um, to get a degree in public health. And um, I'm originally from Germany, where I grew up as the oldest of three kids in a pretty large extended family. And out of all of them, all aunts, uncles, cousins, I'm the first one to go to school beyond grade 10. Yeah, and I'm really stretching that because here I am, 35 and still in school. (laughs) Verena described herself as being from a working class background without, as she mentioned, any university-educated family members, making her decision to not only attend university, but now pursue a PhD, perhaps an unexpected course. I wanted to know how she came to this decision, and when she realized the significance of her first-generation identity. The reason she decided to attend university? So I think it, it was it was mostly opportunity, and because I could. I think that's um, there's something to be said about European post-secondary education system where in a lot of countries it's tuition-free so it wasn't a financial burden for my family Um, and then there's a lot of uh, loan and grant systems in place um, for needs-based students so I was um, able to 
get a lot of support from the government financially. And then I think it was more that growing confidence as well. So for instance, before, um, when I was younger, I just thought I'd be a nurse, which is not a university degree in Germany. Um, but then I had different people, you know, teachers or other adults in my life tell me, well, if you're into medicine, why not try to go to medical school? And I never thought I would do that, but all of a sudden it became a possibility, and so I just did it. <laughs> and how did she come to terms with her first-generation identity? So I think I realized it really when I entered grade 10, and my parents said, so this is how far, uh, this is as far as any of us ever went, so from here on out, you're on your own. Um, and then taking that to school and looking around at my peers who really had ongoing support by all of their family, including, you know, things that it took, like tutoring or just that extra support that I then never had. Um, and this wasn't just in, you know, beyond grade 10, but then obviously also when I went to university where I was surrounded by people who had um, parents who had either gone to medical school themselves or had gotten any other kind of university degree. And um, to me, it was really in the beginning, especially in university, it was a bit of a shock um, to learn that that seems to be the norm for many people. And I felt really anxious um, and just had a bit of an imposter syndrome. Like, at what point are they going to figure out that I don't belong here? But after a couple of years, um, that really switched and it became kind of a point of pride for me. And um, I was proud of what I had accomplished. So, Despite the fact that university is considerably more affordable in Europe than it is here in North America, Verena was still forced to simultaneously work multiple jobs during school. Yes, I wor worked four jobs at a time to put myself through medical school in addition to the government uh, loans and grants that I had in place. Um, so I never really had a student experience, and I should I should add that medical school in Germany is also a six-year program and no undergrad, so that's all I had, basically. Um, so it was work and study, and I missed a lot of the seminars and in-person um, lectures, and I studied a lot out of books and just showed up for the exams. So I just always felt like I didn't have that student, all-around student experience that um, I know a lot of people do have and did have at the time. There was one pivotal um, incident where I was with a friend from medical school and he just called his mom and said, Mom, I need 500 euros. I can't pay rent. And that was that, right? Like, I could never do that. <laughs> I would need to go work for two weeks to get that. Um, so that's kind of when I realized, oh, like, other people are in different situations. So, yeah, and, and I think that is part of the reason why much, you know, several years down the road I did decide to go back to school and just... Um, really enjoy that and leverage being a student and living that student experience, mm. which I'm doing now. <laughs> While working four simultaneous jobs may seem extreme, the reality is, for many low-income students, scholarships, loans, and other forms of financial aid rarely cover the entirety of an individual's cost of living, with things such as textbooks, rent, utilities, groceries, phone bills, and other necessities still unpaid for. At universities located in increasingly unaffordable cities, such as Vancouver, many students are required to work, especially when their families are unable to provide financial support. 
The more a student is required to work, however, the less they are able to participate in many aspects of the so-called student experience, and in more extreme cases like Verena's school itself. She talked about how this forced absence was an alienating process, in many ways forcing her to remain separate from the university. This brought us to discuss a topic that comes up often on this show, imposter syndrome, something that Verena, despite her academic accomplishments and real-world experience, continues to face. I mean, I get that to this day. Um, I don't know if that's just, you know, if everybody gets that, but especially in in situations where I have to present my work and then kind of um, be able to answer questions, that's where I'm really, yeah, imposter syndrome is definitely a thing. Like my my thesis defense for the master's thesis, I was extremely nervous. I really thought, okay, this is the moment I find out that I really don't belong here. Um, And... I think that's normal to a certain degree for everyone, and I don't always consciously connect that back to my identity as a first-gen student. Um, But where I do realize where it gets to this day, even though I think I've built a lot of confidence over the years, but to this day where I get very insecure is around people who are very clearly intellectuals, right? Like people who tell me about their child, their best childhood memories is playing with their professor dad in the Toby Gardens. Like I've literally heard the story before. And that's just something that is, you know, so detached from my own experience. And and I get very self-conscious around people like that. Yeah, to this day. So these like archetype um, academics, I think, yeah. She acknowledged how this quote-unquote outsider status can be a strength as well, however, allowing her to provide insights from her own non-academic experiences. She acknowledged that this quote-unquote outsider status can be a strength as well, however, allowing her to provide insights from her own non-academic experiences. She also stressed that her research and field of study are, in many ways, informed by her own story and background. My actual PhD research now is to look at knowledge translation strategies that health researchers and academics can use to influence environmental policy. And I'm doing, and this is not very traditional public health research, it's not very academic research. It's very much applied and hands-on and action-oriented, which is pretty new in this field. So there's some, you know, swimming against the tide, I think is how you say that. Um, but I think as I reflect upon how that is, relates to my biography, it's this, this idea of, okay, if I'm going to use all these resources and go to school for that long, it better be for something that, you know, has an application and that can change things. Um, and then what I realized after I went back to university that so much of what we do here just disappears in some drawer. No one ever reads it. It, the idea of it isn't even that it would change things, and it really frustrates me. So I chose this particular PhD topic because it really combines that, that wish to, to change things with the topics that I'm passionate about. On that note, we're going to take a break. After, we're going to continue to talk about Verena's desire to help cause real-world change, hearing more about her research and how it applies to the experiences of and barriers faced by first-generation and low-income students. The UBC Climate Hub is a university-wide initiative that aims to connect and empower university and community stakeholders to take bold climate action for a just future. 
To learn more about the pathways in which students can contribute to the climate debate during their time at UBC, visit their website, ubcclimatehub.ca. Welcome back to The Torchbearers. We're going to continue to hear from Verena about her research, continuing to look at how many topics covered on this show intersect. What we often talk about when, when we look at you know, what, what um, contributes to health or causes health problems outside of you know, the biomedical lens that is very predominant in um, you know, academic research right now is um, the social determinants of health, like you said, right? Things like income, um, ethnicity, uh, educational attainment, and so on, they're all directly linked to someone's health outcome. And um, that's actually what first led me to study public health. And then um, I've kind of reconnected to this other passion in my life, which is the environment and um, environmental stewardship and you know, fighting climate change. And I came across this, um, you know, what everybody, the buzzword, the climate justice. So um, you can basically also apply a justice lens to the impact of climate change and environmental degradation, which disproportionately affects um, already vulnerable and marginalized populations who usually contributed the least to the problem, right? So this, this um, red thread of unfairness can just be spun even further upstream. So when we look at just the, the, the planet that we live on, and that's kind of the idea of planetary health, that really everything is connected. And, um, and I think that's, on the one hand, that's, it just makes so much sense to look at things that way. On the other hand, um, it's also extremely difficult because we sit in our silos and we all work on specific tiny little problems and we think, oh, if we just solve this problem, we would find the silver bullet. And I think we really have to wrap our heads around that there is no silver bullet, right? It needs everything. And some people need more support and deserve more support and others don't need as much. So, um, and that shouldn't be a question of competition, it should be a question of compassion. As Verena states, everything is connected. Even the example she gave, climate change, can and will continue to impact first-generation and low-income students, especially those who will become refugees or migrants as a result of worsening climate change. As we noted in the first episode of this podcast, in which we explored how refugee status affects first-gen students, opportunities to leave refugee camps are scarce and competitive. With a worsening climate, and therefore a worsening refugee crisis, these opportunities will become both rarer and more sought after. Returning to first-generation and low-income students already at UBC, Verena spent a considerable amount of time discussing how food insecurity and eating habits relate to mental health. And my master's actually did a study on the mental health and well-being, especially depression and anxiety, in UBC's undergrad population and how that um, is related to their eating habits, because that, that's how I tied it back to an environmental um, issue. But anyways, what I can say, what I thought, what really shocked me, even though I knew the literature and I kind of expected it, it's still when you see it in your own data that more than a third of the students screen positive for depressive symptoms, for anxiety symptoms, to a degree that they would really need help. Um, it's just unbelievable, right? Because do, we do think we're in this privileged um, kind of bubble here at this university 
where you know people probably have all the support they need um, and yet we have such high prevalence of these issues it's really really shocking as we discussed in our episode on food insecurity financial difficulty and the unaffordable nature of university result in shocking numbers of students facing food insecurity which as Verena notes is detrimental to students mental health from this we can see how income disparity disproportionately faced by first-gen and low-income students, unsurprisingly has a direct impact on their mental well-being. Another topic we've explored on this show is loneliness, isolation, and a lack of any sense of belonging. Farina also mentioned how these feelings relate to both mental and physical health. These came up when discussing some of the tentative solutions she is working to implement, noting the important role that community plays in preserving both mental and physical health. The nice thing about my study was that I worked with stakeholders from the beginning, from UBC Wellbeing and Food Services and um, uh, and the Sustainability Office, and we're really trying to, and this work is ongoing, I sit on several committees, um, we're really trying to um, come up with initiatives that that build a community on campus, right? Because healthy living is often connected to social support. This is true for physical activity, it is true for uh, mental well-being, quality of life, and it is true for dietary habits. Um, so it's not just, it doesn't come down to the individual, which is often what we think, right? It's like, oh, if we just tell this individual to eat better and to exercise more often, everything will be fine. But it's actually about the social support around it. So if we can get people together, make these experiences more enjoyable and supported by the university, um, it would really be beneficial to the mental well-being of the students. So I think um, there are some great initiatives underway. It's not nearly enough. Um, can always be more. Mm-hmm. But I think just the fact that universities are starting to recognize that that is within their mandate uh, to make sure that the student population is actually healthy and, and mentally healthy and not just, you know, this is all the content that we can teach you, now go and do whatever. Um, I think that's, it's a big step in the right direction. And while Farina expressed righteous anger about the disconnect between academic research and real-world solutions, she expressed her surprise at the speed at which the university is attempting to combat issues such as food insecurity. I continue to be surprised by the positive reception of these things. So I think you had an episode on food security as well. I mean, that's really unprecedented to see the speed by which um, things are happening in that area, right? We we get the data, we show, you know, I think 39% of the students at some point um, have felt food insecure. And, and leadership takes it on and, you know, throws money at the, at the issue and, and, you know, has hired staff to, to tackle the issue. That doesn't necessarily mean things are going to change immediately, but it shows a will um, of university leadership to, to do something about these things. And it, that's my general uh, experience across the board. I mean, we do have to understand that this is really just politics, right? And there's always competing interests one of which um, is money. So that always gets thrown around for sure. But I think in general, especially lots of the staff members um, that work here really have the students' interest um, as their first priority. To close, 
I wanted to know what Verena thought would be most important to enabling an intersectional approach to combating these issues of inequality. She gave two key answers. I think the problem is, first of all, that, that disconnect between um, the academy and the real world. There's literally not much um, relationship going on, right? And then we have different incentives in the real world, quotation marks, and academia. So in academia, you you are seen as productive and successful if you publish a lot of work in the peer-reviewed literature or if you go to a lot of conferences and talk about your work. The audience for that are other researchers, right? There's hardly ever a policymaker or a decision maker at these conferences. Whereas, um, let's say, you know, the city of Vancouver has very specific issues that they would like to see um, researched and answered. Um, but that's not necessarily very um, attractive for academic researchers because they might not be able to publish that work. So I think until that system in academia changes and we get incentivized and quite frankly paid for work other than publishing yet another problem, um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. And that's really frustrating because I feel like we basically we get paid by the public to find solutions to problems and yet all we do is describe problems i mean like environmental or climate change science is the best example for decades scientists say like this needs to be done and it's not getting done and i think part of it is also because um, we don't understand how politics work we don't understand that decisions are not solely based on evidence, ever. <laughs> not for me personally, and certainly not um, in the political realm. Um, and last but not least, I think, is because a lot of academics are so afraid to be called activists. And really, that's what we need to become. We need to become activists and advocates on behalf of our evidence. Otherwise, we're just sitting on it and it's not doing anything. And her second answer? So I think one thing that I've that I've learned in my background as, as a psychiatrist or mental health um, clinician is definitely stop focusing on the problems, right? Start focusing on the strengths and really elevate that. Um, and, you know, like there are students here who work four or five jobs and send most of the money that they make back to their parents to support their family. Those are things, I mean, that shows incredible resilience, incredible time management skills, right? Um, why not celebrate that more than than always, you know, focusing on the problems what these students have because that that generates stigma, right? But if you can kind of instill a sense of pride um, in first gen students, that really kind of battles stigma as well. And stigma around that is a big issue um, because it it leads people to to hiding away their their concerns and their problems and not seeking the support and help that they could get and deserve. Ultimately, Verena offered a vision of ambitious yet attainable change that can be implemented to support first-generation, low-income, and otherwise marginalized students. Key to her entire argument, however, is the importance of community and collectiveness, whether that be creating spaces where these students can come together in support of one another, or standing in solidarity with these students, and most importantly, using your own privilege to empower them. As we reach the halfway point of this podcast, we want to re-highlight its major objective. That is, celebrating the journeys and triumphs of first-generation and low-income students at UBC, 
in order to combat the stigmatization often associated with those identities. It's merely a first step in a broader conversation about how to approach the issues and barriers that prove most detrimental to their success. As these barriers intersect and often perpetuate one another, and are also reinforced by various systems of oppression and marginalization, so too must any proposed solutions be, in order to most effectively combat them and ensure that all students are given the necessary opportunities and resources to succeed. This has been The Torchbearers. The Torchbearers is produced by the First Generation Student Union at UBC and me, Alec Christensen, and is directed by Zara Fazal. The podcast is funded by the 2019 UBC Equity Enhancement Fund. If you're curious to learn more about the First Generation experience, consider getting involved with the FGSU Club and stay updated with all that we do by following us on Facebook. You can find us by searching at UBC FGSU. To hear more stories from first-generation and low-income students, subscribe to The Torchbearers on SoundCloud and Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review to help us grow. And join us next episode when we look at financial wellness.